My name is Maura Spiegel, and um, I'm the Associate Director of the Program in Narrative Medicine, and I'm standing in for Dr. Deepu Gowda, who is out of town right now. Um, uh, before we begin, I just want to mention, as Deepu would, that next month, on November 1st, physician journalist Elizabeth Rosenthal will be speaking on the cost of health care, the lessons she learned while writing her new book called An American Sickness, how healthcare became big business and how you can take it back. This evening, we are thrilled to be honoring and enjoying and being changed by the work of the poet Max Ritvo, and to have Max's mom, Dr. Ariella Ritvo Slivka, here with us tonight, um, and to have Lucy Brock Broido here to introduce Max's recorded readings, which will be followed by a Q&A. I want to ask Robin Flicker to introduce Ms. Brock Broido. Um, Robin, a lifelong lover and expert in the field of poetry, is a student in our master's program. And we have her to thank for this event, into which she has poured so much of herself. Robin introduced us to Max's work, which has already become a cherished part of our curriculum. We are so grateful. Hi. Um, thank you all so much for coming here. Um, it is my hope that this will be um, an experience where we can all feel Max's presence because it's such a gift. It's a gift in the poetry, it's a gift in the world. Um, just to give you a little bit of background if you don't know, Max Ritvo um, is from Los Angeles and when he was 16 years old, he was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. He was treated successfully and went on to Yale as an undergraduate. When he was a senior, the Ewings came back, and still he persisted. He came here, he graduated Yale, he came here to Columbia, he became a student of Lucy Brock-Broido, a wonderful poet and friend of mine, um, in the MFA program. He also worked at Parnassus Poetry Review, with my dear friend Herb Leibowitz, who was the editor of that, and um, and on August 23rd, 2016, we lost If you have a chance at some point, if you're so inclined, uh, there is a wonderful podcast, an interview that Max did very shortly before his passing called The Prank Our Bodies Play on Life. And in that, uh, in that interview, Max talks about what's funny about dying, and you can't understand that until you meet him, which you will soon. Um, but among other things, Max talks about that his greatest wish was that we learn his tricks. And by tricks, he meant um, what the critic Helen Bedler has said about Max, that there is an out-of-nowhereness quality to his poetry. And that is to say that with many poets, wonderful poets, we can follow their metaphors. The sky is a dome, the lake is a mirror. With Max, 
not so much. <laughs> um, because Max had to do something that most people, the poet Paul Ceylon, who wrote about the Holocaust, did, and that's really to telescope his sensorium and to create a phantasmagoria around that which has not been imagined. Um, and so his metaphors come as if out of nowhere. Who would say that all of the, all of the wishes in a fountain will light up at the same time? It's, an, it's a crazy thing to say, but when Max says it, we understand. When Max says, I have spoken to you of heaven, I simply meant the eyes are suns that see, we understand. When Max imagines the boy in a coffin and imagines and tells us that the worms and the bugs are raping and devouring each other, we imagine that too. But we don't imagine it in misery because I don't think that that's the trick Max wanted us to imagine. I think that Max lived in the interstices between illness and health, between life and death, and it seems like that's a good project for us here in narrative medicine, to learn to do what Max said is the hard work of the imagination, to minister to the new dream. And every day for us, look at our world, is about trying to minister to whatever the new dream is. And it's sometimes a nightmare, as John Berryman tells us in the dream songs. Um, Wallace Stevens, um, Wallace Stevens says, I just want to get the quote right, from this the poem springs, that we live in a place that is not our own, and much more not ourselves, and hard it is in spite of blazoned days. Max Ritfeld faced the hardship of living in a place and inhabiting a body that more and more was not his own, not the body that he was given and that body that he deserved. Yet, through what he called the hard work of the imagination, his gift to us was to have lived that hard, life through blazoned words. So, the other thing I just want to say that Max said in a poem that I just want you to keep in mind, let room mean life, let room mean death, but let the room always be full. see through these, they're just for effect, so <laughs> I'm very intelligent. Um, thank you for inviting me here, and um, I'm so new to your world. This program is new to me, and it's kind of, I know you've been going on um, for quite some time, but my world is a little world in Dodge Hall and the School of the Arts at Columbia, where I stay up all night with my students, and um, I do keep them pretty late. They like that. Um, 
I think I know more about medicine from my own demons and phobias than I do about narrative. I'm a lyric poet. Um, I don't know how to tell stories in poems, but I have a story that I want to tell you about what it was like to know Max and to be the teacher of him all the while while he was the teacher of me and of so many people and of his peers. Um, I have the great pleasure of um, having a job that I love. I never expected that to happen. What, what could be more pleasurable than working with young, gifted, blooming, new poets who are fragile and excited and <clears throat> but I, I, I will say that Max was my most extraordinary student um, not just for the poems that he was able to write although those of course but for the spirit that he brought when he entered a room he was hysterically funny. Um, for the love that he brought, for he was a Dickens, a nuisance uh, in class. <clears throat> he was incorrigible, he was brilliant. He provoked love. And there's no one at school who did not honor this young man. Um, I just want to say that I, I want to dedicate what I'm going to be saying to Max's mother, Ari, who's in the front row, who is also from another world, and she's the one who gave us Max, and sometimes when I miss Max, she's the closest thing that we have to him. She carried him. I think he carried her too. Uh, but I don't know that I would have gotten to know him by the time he entered Columbia um, had she not made her life keeping him in the world. And he was magical. Uh, she also is the one who bullied me into writing a narrative um, for the New Yorker uh, and that was a very hard thing for me to do I'm just a lyric poet uh, and I was working with I mean you all are writers um, I'd never worked with an editor who was straight like who wanted straight prose and I'd write these great paragraphs and they'd be wild and funny and she'd say, oh no, you have to take that out. And I'd say, no, I have poetic license. And she'd say, so we'd be back and forth. But eventually she gave way to me and I was able to write this piece. Um, she is the one who, the editor is the one who named the article Losing Max Ridfo, which I objected to. I had something much more romantic in mind. But um, she was right. It, it was about my piece was about what it was like 
to teach Max with foam. And I don't feel like I've lost him, and I think you will feel that way because of the poems of his that you're going to see and, and hear. Um, as I understand it, your genre is about the embodied experience, um, not the texts or tales of those who are ill, but a universe as it unfolds from a person's body and that the narrative transcends the illness but never abandons it. I think in my most romantic ruminations that poetry is the closest we can get to infinity. I'm not always that romantic, um, but at my highest self, I think, well, that's what it is. It's very hard to get poems to last as well. Um, there, but Max's are going to be here, and it's kind of a promise we all made him, but it's a promise he made himself with his gifts. Uh, even though poetry may be a form of infinity, um, my every hour with Max was finite. Um, I knew this from the first, but I never really believed it because um, there's got to be such a thing as not leaving the world, and he's the one. I don't know how that's possible, but Max couldn't, in my imagination, leave, leave this world. And his relationship to being alive on this earth, forever at least, kept me afloat, perhaps in denial, perhaps it was a religion, maybe it was only just a dream, but he was too, he was dreamy, but he was too true to not be a dream. Um, I did not teach Max as if he were dying. There was no time nor appetite or possibility for that. He was utterly alive, and he let me teach him that way. Sometimes the only weight I felt, the heart heaviness, was that I wanted more time. I wanted, uh, Keats has a, a poem where he asked for 10 years apprenticeship in fantasy, and uh, that's what I wanted more with him as a teacher, 10 more years to see what he would do next. For a first book to come into the world the way his book has come into the world is, I've never seen it before. That, was it you, Robin, who said it's selling best on Amazon more than the, the Odyssey? The, 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 come on. Uh, um, great books of poems sell 250 to 500 copies, and you get really rich doing it. Um, I'm teasing. Uh, so, I could never treat him as a finite spirit, and I wonder, was it an imaginary place we were in, but 
even though so much was imagined for him, I don't know anyone for whom more was real. So maybe we were just lucky. Maybe we were blessed. Um, I'm going to read some pieces of this article called Losing Max Ritvo. And it's not just about his poems, but it's just try to imagine teaching a young man of this ilk and what it felt like. Uh, and that's what I tried to put into my narrative. I first met Max Ritvo on the page in the winter of 213. I was in my office at the School of the Arts at Columbia, and his MFA application was in its green folder, along with the hundreds of other green folders, anonymous in their likeness from the outside. Admissions is a daunting project each year. It's joyful, it's dreadful, it's exhilarating, it's overwhelming. My colleagues and I do stay up all night on that first cut, um, and delirium sets in after about eight hours, and then we're passing them and saying, and you know, some of my colleagues say, well, she's a Scorpio. <laughs> they do, and I'm, I'm a straight guy, Santa. Well, my moon's in Scorpio, but that's it for them. Um, so we were in the business of hunting for truffles, ever on the alert for something that stood out, a sudden manuscript of poems that entreats, intrigues, or one that just gives off heat or even electricity. When I came across this anonymous green folder, which was Max's application, it beckoned to me. His literary essay was plainly brilliant. His personal essay was kind of kooky, which drew me to it right away. Mid-page, no one's ever done this, he called out my name and said, Lucy, if you're reading this, check out my poem, Troy. I mean, do you say that to the director of poetry and application? So I checked out his poem, Troy. It's, it's as if he sauntered up to the edge of the proscenium of the page and just broke its convention. And he did that all the time. He lived at that proscenium so many hours. The poems left off the page, ungoverned, astronomical, astrological, indigenous, but from where, witty, and sorceling, and brave. After the long process is through, we, we phone each of our accepted poets, and Max, quite on purpose, was the first call I made that year. And I said to him, in a word, Khmer. We were on the phone over an hour. I was smitten. On the first day of school that following autumn, I met Max in real life. We found each other right away, hearts singing. As we sat together in the late afternoon sun on the steps of Low Library, another first-year poet came to join us. She was smoking and asked Max if he wanted a cig. He said, poker face, oh, no, 
thank you. I have cancer. She disappeared very quickly. He did have cancer, a rare and awfully deadly form called Ewing's sarcoma, and diagnosed, as Robin said, at the age, I think, of 15. But that once you're in its vortex, then in remission, then pulled back in again, it seems most unlikely that you will ever be let go from that. As a student, Max was generous, often brilliant. Almost every little thing he did was magic. Peculiar, off-guard, tender, even tenderer. From time to time, a rogue joy would overtake him, and he would burst into song during class. His voice was rich, handsome, trained, and this singing was so seductive and ridiculously, hilariously distracting. I told him that he'd have to go in the corner facing away from us if he did it again. He did it again. <laughs> Imagine in a grainy 1930s film on a jumpy speed, a huge bank of bell telephone operators, they were called girls, seated like symmetrical rockets in front of a 40-foot metal switchboard with hundreds and hundreds of variegated color wires and plugs, a thousand color-coded jacks to place them in, in a technical marvel of the 20th century. Imagine them being the supervisor there, the taller woman on roller skates, gliding thither and thither and yon from one station to the next, up and down the avenue of the machine and its girls, making certain each connection winds up in its proper place. That whoever it is who wants to speak to whomever can, astonishingly, be patched through to that other person, getting it right. That is what it felt like to be Max's teacher. I was the supervisor on my roller skates. I believe his imagination must have been born fully formed before he had a language even for his gifts. I think he was an infant scholar, a child genius, a brother from another planet. For him, all of the synapses and fantasies, the humanity and spirit were there just for the plucking. For me, as his mentor, all I needed to learn in order to teach him was to stay one roller glide ahead of him to oversee the geometries and the effulgences of his imagination, to help beckon and tease each right wire into each right plug. The work he turned in for class was often untethered, a beautiful little wreck on its way to being numinous. He may well have been one of the most willful young poets I've ever worked with, though ever courtly and irreverent and beguilingly comical in his manner. He was, in a sense, adamantine in his surrendering to change. But I never once caught him 
being decent. He was in a hurry. He was dying, though he always carried with him the audacity of real hope. In a poem he had written, Adore me to sleep before sleep can adore me on its own terms. There was always for me a finitude in every hour I did spend with him. He did not carry that. He stood in front of it. He stood beside it. I was the one who carried his constant impending death along with me. I've never mastered the art of embracing impermanence. Max had that down. It was as if he had 80 years of living already in him at the age of 22. Our last pedagogical adventure took place in February of 2016. At the end of the MFA program, each student submits a thesis, a book-length manuscript of poems that will eventually become his or her first book. Two professors read each thesis. Each professor writes a response. Then we meet together with the student for a one-hour conference. I was one of Max's readers, along with my colleague, the poet Dottie Lasky, who was also very, very wound up and attached to Max. Max had left the city by then. His illness was advancing, and he was at home with his family in L.A. So our meeting with him was by Skype. Our one-hour conference with him went on for two days, about six hours the first evening and another four or five the following day. It was excessive. It was divine. It was hysterically funny. When the discussion became very serious, sometimes Max would turn away from the camera and come back with a post-it note stuck to his forehead, each expressing what he really thought, such as annoyed, ecstatic, are you serious? His company those nights was irresistible, riddled with gratitude plus punk. From time to time he came defensive. Dottie passed me a secret note that said, he gets angry when he's learning. <laughs> the manuscript was beautifully flawed, full of conjuring, a menagerie of tones, a clarity of devastation, the unspeakable spoken and made humane, the dreadful made beautiful, the erotic made quirky, the febrile details, the ebullient. We wanted to give him the whole world while his world was still almost whole. In the last poem in his book, Universe Where We Weren't Artists, Max wrote, when the breath starts to be ragged, tickle me, my dearest beloveds, so that the raggedness becomes confused. The last time I saw Max was in June of 2016. His poem, Poem to My Litter, which you will see, which will delight you, was published in The New Yorker that same month. I flew down from Cambridge to New York for the day. He was back in treatment at Sloan Kettering and was told he might die that night. He did not die. So many near deaths. 
but he went on not dying. Back in LA for the summer, still trying avant-garde experimental treatments, he began to fail. I wrote a letter about the afterlife to him. Neither of us believed in an afterlife. His poems would be his life after this one. By then, his first book, Four Reincarnations, was well on its way to publication. I wrote to him, sentimental, ravishing, about all the work. He texted back, save it for the blurb. <laughs> he wanted that blurb, and I gave him a grip. In July, we spoke on the phone often, though his voice was failing, going underwater, it seemed. Then one day he texted me. He said, my voice is getting warbly and hoarse. I can't really sing, which drives me nuts. Is he thinking of singing even now? So began a texting frenzy. I was surreptitiously working on that blurb for his first book, his last book. I decided a slight inquisition was in order. I texted him. If you were a fish, I asked him, what kind would you be? He texted, let me think on that. The next day he wrote back, I would be an opaline gourami. I had to look that up. It looked just like Max. <laughs> it's an exotic freshwater species, omnivorous and silvery, silvery blue, which breathes directly from the water's surface, from the air, perfect. More questions. Who's your favorite actor? He wrote, I don't like actors. Dancer, Cosvo Ono. Philosopher, Hume, Wittgenstein. Musician, Nina Simone. Tom Waits, Lena Horne. Nina Simone. Otis Redding, Nina Simone. Visual, Van Gogh, Hakusai. He closed, Kafka is the best artist. I love you. Several days before Max died, on August 23rd, 2016, he left me a gift, a voice message, breathless, whispered, almost under the water by now, but there was no fear in his voice. If you could confect a message, let's just say one in this lifetime, if you can imagine someone saying everything you ever wanted to hear from a confidant, from a soulmate, a student, a teacher, this was that one thing. It was the only communication we'd ever had that was devoid of irony, just straight, just forward. It was impossible to think of it as closure because that is something I could never have with Max. He, in his poem, this tercet, we are becoming a bulb in the ground of the living, in the winter of being alive. Sometimes it feels strange to have had him here, just as it now feels impossibly strange <clears throat> to not have him here. Almost every time I spoke, I speak of him. I am compelled to use the word luminous. Ours was, as the poet Wallace Stevens wrote in his final soliloquy of the interior paramour, 
the intensest rendezvous. Plain and simple. I adore this kid, this student of mine. I adore him still. Thanks very much.
self-conscious about the grand experiment of poetry. So um, I wanted to start off tonight um, with a poem. <laughs> and I'll end with a poem, and we'll middle parts of the rest of it. But uh, this is a poem called The Blimp. And, um, you know, as Tim mentioned, cancer. Um, and there's like, two terrible things about hospitals. Hospitals are gross and horrible, and you boo yourself, and they have blood everywhere. But they're also very boring. Um, they're these really clinical, um, cave-like environments that are really terrifyingly boring. Um, and this is sort of like a dream ode to the boring parts of hospitals um, that I've gotten to know very well. And it's sort of inspired by cave paintings and just being in those environments, which are really sacred, but also uh, quiet, and uh, eye exams, and sort of the, the, many, the many things that, that center around boringness. It's called the blimp. The poem's not boring, don't worry. The blimp. I thought above my head there was a blimp, and it, it trailed hoses covered in tacks, some of which inhaled and some of which blew air. And I thought the blimp was fate. And the shadow it cast was fate's decision that I stay in shadow. And I thought the world was growing craggy, everywhere illuminated with white chalk. But the shadow went down, down, and I was in a wheelchair riding down, and my body was swelling, my stomach and limbs swelling, and I was asked to describe some letters scratched on the wall, but making sense of them was difficult. So I loved them, like Mom. And many years later, in this morning serenity, there was no place for this. As there is never a place for struggle in a living room where someone is pouring you ice water in exchange for grateful silence you learn to love. That promise for Tim. So you get a lot of like little dolls products and like tin toy robots 
And it was just like, it was such a microcosm that her house had this exploded history in it, this exploded capacity. And Melissa loved, you know, her paintings were simple, but her life was really richly and decadently brocaded with effort, with refining things, you know, and that was as much of a craft as it were. Um, so you see the tiny balls in this poem. Um, I also want to say, I was like, I would never edit this poem for anything. And Lucy was like, you should edit this poem. I was like, no, Lucy. And then I totally edited the poem. <laughs> <laughs> I went back home, I was like, shit. So, that's Lucy. She gets in your name. <laughs> the Watercolor Eulogy from Melissa Carroll. When you leave my mind, the last pieces of you to leave are your hands. When you go to the earth, the last part of you visible above what is either sand or clay isn't a hand, but a glowing shroud. The black goose, with your name in its throat and my name in its stomach, will cough you up with her boots. Heart jelly, heart watch, heart phone, heart me, heart power. There's a dead language buried in English. There is a word no one remembers for a temple with a bowl of millet sealed in each brick. When you are buried, the word will grow a soft sound. Its meaning will change to specify you as the builder. No one can speak a language you will be right. I know this isn't the heaven we want. Whatever it is. And soon, I'll be joining you amid the terms for tiny balls of defunct potions and no longer understood passions. And together we'll bury our own particular I love you. I have no clue how similar it will be to other phrases that live on in this world, but I take comfort in imagining it. I wouldn't mind it being sealed off with us in our brick of earth. Good. What's it called? Uh, the watercolor eulogy. It's in Allen's too. That's a chapbook that's purchasable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this next poem is a poem to my rival. All poets, I think, should have rivals. Um, my rival looks just like me. Um, he dates my ex. He's very healthy, both physically and mentally. Very talented poet. So in this, in this moment, I challenge him to see who's better at ritual sacrifice. Um, that scenario, he's got nothing on me. Um, and ritual sacrifice is very influenced by the Vedas, the pre-Buddhist texts of India, and then it's a really cool thing in that, many cool things. A cool thing that I find particularly cool thing is uh, possession in a lot, as the way we think of it is if something hits you and you get overwhelmed and taken over and there's no you left. Um, and in the Vedas, possession means gaining so much control over your body 
becoming so aware of each intentional movement as you go through all the crazy intercessing rituals that you um, become this like perfect throne, this perfect vessel of control for the God that's already latent inside of you. So it's not a matter of losing yourself, it's a matter of being so much in touch with your senses and your touchness that you're able to let a God reside. So this is Tarangal. That's not his real name. I just thought his name I could think of as Randall. Snuggle up with my mom in her bed, 
and watch uh, Man Chop and cartoons at 6 a.m. on all other nights I had to wait until 9 a.m. and couldn't, you know. So I made the dog after my like an edible victory. And he died of cancer, but this was long before it would have been symbolic. But um, I ended up, I'm vegetarian, and I ended up eating meat accidentally, and I felt really horrible and started thinking about my dog and my dog's flesh. And I wrote this poem uh, to my boss, who died when I was uh, 12 or 13, but you know, poems, you know, last year. Poems to my dog Monday on the night I accidentally ate me. The lights went out on Monday, laying on a green rug, wanting to make noise only. A visitation left in his small, white body. The symbol is outrageous, like a hundred men in your soul slamming down jam jars. Thank God for the past tense and its order. Let the dog die before it was symbolic. Monday, the hunt left your bed. You found a white bulb in your body to sleep in. Monday, it's leaving you too. Why is life love flowers most when they're still bulbs? The plant and the roots all stalks, stalking themselves in a circle in the dark. Monday, with your millions of soft horns, I will slip behind your cool eyes, loading myself like a cartridge of life. I will live in your small, ecstatic brain and take your life, and you can take mine. And we won't give our lives to cancer, but to each other. And thank God for the future, where we levitate. Or maybe oblivion curls down our ears into wings, or thinks that he eats. Okay. If I move to move, hi. Let's just start this, right? Yes. Okay. So this first poem um, is a poem to my psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Popsek. And um, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's this thing where uh, a monk will uh, reincarnate after he dies uh, and his, his old student will find him and become his teacher. So these two human beings will be locked in this reincarnation cycle, but they'll be teaching one another, sort of what they've taught one another forever. Um, and I sort of imagine that maybe my strength would reincarnate as my patient if I was a psychiatrist, and then we might have a psychoanalytic relationship like the Tibetan lamas do, um, but the decidedly un Buddhist nature of psychoanalysis making think there needs to be justification for this divinely somehow. Uh, that's empirical. So thinking about uh, cognitive, not all the introductions are this long, by the way. Uh, thinking about cognitive science, um, uh, I thought, you know, the brains and computers and everything is just binary. It's just systems of interrelated on and off switches. And that's sort of like what a speaking voice and a silent voice is like. And um, human beings, as they interact, create a very basic kind of binary. And maybe to globalize that, 
there's a meta-consciousness made out of all of us, and maybe my shrink and I talking to each other is a very important part of this God-consciousness, and that is why we so reincarnate. So this poem is called Poem in Which My Shrink is a Little Boy. Um, and you know the law is the way they find their old students is they, should, they lay out stuff uh, for belonging to the person from the past life. And if, when you choose that thing out of a bunch of random stuff, that's how you know it's, it's the old person come back to life. Home in which my shrink is a little boy. Pick which is yours, I say. Wordlessly you take the legal path, his old legal path, from the glass table between us. My excitement mounting, I plunk down a block of toffee, a box of Tic Tacs, and a husk of listerine pocket path, fresh strips. You reach for the fresh strips, his fresh strips. Welcome back, Doc. What a strapping young lad you've chosen for a body. <laughs> Let me explain. You're the reincarnation of my second analyst. For all eternity, we've switched off as patient and doctor, our souls twin through countless bodies. Your gift for Gab is cosmically important. And just like neurons fire into a mind, part habit and part chaos, so do the world's voices fire into a god. Our chats are as important to God as Earth elements is to you. He can't risk us not analyzing one another forever. He might have a seizure. <laughs> if this doesn't make sense yet, don't worry. Tell me about your day. And I will tell you about your day <laughs> until it is our day. <laughs> the boys at school tease you for your Velcro shoes. I'm sorry, but you'll never outgrow them. Last night you were at the zoo, and a monkey tied together your laces. You fell on your face, and the monkey laughed at you, but despite your threats, you never started eating meat. Things don't change unless you want them to. And why would you want to give up little things we know when we know so little? Uh, this next poem, this is called Senses, and this is a poem about how I wish I could spend more time in my nose and ears and mouth and eyes, because they're so much better to me than my thought processes are. <laughs> I'm Jewish. <laughs> um, uh, so this is just a poem about really trying to stay in the senses. I meditate unsuccessfully, trying to stay in the senses as long as possible, and finding instead, inevitably, a mind that thinks about a mind, the senses. Everything feels so good to me. My whole hat, the cocoon of dryness in my throat, the sound of burning vegetables. It's like a quiet, clean man folding sheets. But I keep having thoughts. This thought always holding at bay, the next thought until it settles into yet another picture of dissatisfaction that loves to be thought, another hair, ugly as the head of a man who is thinking. I thought my next thought would be a vision of my suffering. I thought I would understand the yellow lightning in a painted storm, the crucial way it disappears when I imagine myself flung headlong into the painting. Instead, I have this picture of dissatisfaction. 
thought not rising, but splitting in half on the unanswered question of lightning. My mind, like a black glove that you mistake for a man in, in the middle of a blizzard. That one's in the chapbook Aeons, which is available for sale over there. <laughs> Edition are like a failed draft of butterflies, like caterpillar went in there and came out a person. Um, very sad. It's called Bone of Man. Bone of Man. After the cocoon, I have a new human body instead of butterflies. All along my back was great pains. I broke to my feet where I felt wings behind me trying to tell me that they succeeded in doing so after a day of exertion. I call that time overwhelmed with these ghosts of my wings sleep. My thoughts remain those of caterpillars. I took pleasure in climbing trees. I sucked food into all my pains. My mouth produced a language which I attempted to spin over myself and rip through happier and healthier. I do this every few minutes. I think to myself, what made me such a failure? It's all a little petulant pathetic. To live like this, a grown creature telling ghost stories, staring at pictures, paralyzed for hours, and even over dinner, are in bed, still hearing the stories, seeing the pictures, and undertow sucking me back into myself. I'm told to set myself goals. My mind doesn't work that way. I instead have wishes for myself. Wishes aren't afraid to take on their own color and life. Like a boy who takes a razor from a high cabinet, puffs out his cheeks, and strips them. Um, and it's a, it's a relatively recent one, but it, it pleases me to read new work. Um, and hopefully it pleases all. Um, it pleases, did that David please? No. Please, David. David, David, please. There it is, okay. Um, David, please, David. So this poem is about cold touching the floor. And it's, I guess it's a conversation with Carly's poetry, uh, in the poem she read tonight, where you put your hands on the ground in the prayer. I think a lot of the crazy people in this room probably have done that one time or another. Um, so I was thinking about how, um, you know, there's sort of two different mental, oh, there's a billion different mental states. I said there were two. So two different mental states. One where you're sort of apprehending the world, you know, you're feeling things, you're smelling smells, and you have that sort of total absorption in that feeling, um, looking at beautiful plastic bangles if you're not Alaska. Uh, and uh, the, the other moment is, you know, when you're thinking and you're in your mind and you're sort of doing language processing, oftentimes about what you've just sensorily taken in. And we sort of shuttle back and forth between these two different states, and we don't really have a lot of control over it. But as I've gotten older, I've been wanting to spend more and more time in my mind and really seeking out those moments of just physical serenity in the body. Because my mind has gotten very neurotic, uh, much like.
like Richards, um, in my home, so any other Richards. Uh, and uh, I wanted to write that. It's very strange that that has happened. As a lot of you know, I have cancer. I have a sarcoma. And new tumors come up in my body all the time. And I saw that how strange it is to want to spend time in a body that is full of evil, evil cancer over spending time in the mind. And how badly have I fucked with myself that I would rather be with my body than with my mind. Um, so in this moment, I touch my hands to the floor like in Carly's home to put me in my body. And then my mind takes over and then I ask my body to put strength in my mind. So this is called touching the floor. I touch my palms to the floor and granite rhinos surge up my arms, blocking my shoulders. Water flats on my back and my head is shaved by braided crane. But then my time in my body is up and it's time for my mind. It seeks wisdom and the rhinos fall into a well. Their faces fall apart. I want to know what their last words are, but their lips are fading into the purple. I put my hands into the ground again, but rhinos come only for the body and never for the mind. I used to want infinite time with my thoughts. Now I prefer to give all my time to a body that's dying from cancer. Oh body, plague of the kill, darker of sky and water. Could you squeeze shut the little voices pushing my hands out of you, body? Like all the wishes being granted in the fountain, the same instant, 
All the coins burn the town dry. I get my breath through a small bird-shaped pipe. In the distance, I have several voices haggling. I hear a sound like heads clicking together. Like a game of pool, you play with people by machines. I'm going to wrap up to Blizzard. And I was wondering, like, can the guardian angel sleep? I was thinking, I am in the bathtub. Can the guardian angel sleep? And like, what would we look like to a guardian angel? And like, this consciousness that they would have, this angelic consciousness, is probably very different than whatever art is it. So what would, how do we line up with that? What do they see when they look at their wars? It's called the big loser. <laughs> They're all self-portrait bones. <laughs> the big loser. The guardian angel sits in the tree above the black lip of street the man walks down. He calls the man cargo. The angel sees a pine wood box in the place of the man, and the street he walks is a boat, a home like a cold crater. Somewhere in the real world, there is such a boat and box. The angels call these overlays dreams, and believe they crop up because angels can't sleep, but want to. Space falls apart when you have a limited time. The cargo is rattling in the boat. Maybe it's just the waves, or maybe it's rats. What's the difference? By the way, it's a box. The angel sends the man a happy vision from his past. The, the time he fed birthday cake to his goldfish after a, an unsuccessful party. The angel thinks he's applying lemon oil to the creaky, wounded wood of the box. He knows it's pounding it, but it's beautiful. The man reaches the end of the street. He's a sick man. And now, like many other times, he starts to ponder death. All of death is right here. The gods, the dark, the moon. Where was I expecting death to take me if everywhere is on earth? But life's close. You're like the child whose parents step out for a drive. Everyone else, out on a trip. But the child remains in the familiar bed, feeling old lumps, like new, in the mattress. The light's off. Not sleeping, for who can sleep with the promise of the world beyond the door? That night, the angel dreams he's inside the box. It's burning hot, the heat coming from bugs and worms, raping and devouring one another. He starts the hard work of the imagination, learning to minister to the new dream. Perhaps all that's needed is a little rain for everyone to drink. <laughs> Outside, the car humming. Somewhere, his mother's singing. Um, this next poem, nice. Thanks. Matt. So this next poem, I'm liking Mike so far. I'll stick around a bit. Maybe you're right. Uh, this one's called The End. And you know the rapture happened, well, in books it happens. 
um, and people get left over. Um, and I thought about being a leftover rapperman, um, and how I would try to make some religion and some meaning in my life after like a very significant celestial event had passed me by. Kind of like real life passes me by. It's called The End. The moon was dark like it had taken too many pills to produce light. The earth fell apart. Mike, I don't like. The earth fell apart into pockets. The many things in it noticing where they were and surfacing. Heaven was a vacuum. The earth a dirty carpet. What is there to say? All the animals went blind. The pigs out in the countryside. My dear dog who used to fetch. I wondered at one point if I had in fact killed myself. If death just meant spending all the time with the past. The more there is, the more loss there is. A true not only of the world, but of perceiving it. Even of the imagination sizzling on top of it. I have a dark bruise on my body where a tail would come. If I put pure water in my mouth and cough it out, it's mud. Enoch has written, we are made in his image. But God may have many images. He may want even more. But perhaps he is using my body to remake his into a kind of thinking dust. This is, however, an obligation of my choice. I am here. No voices in my ear. No madness but the one of life. Home planet. I just want to say two things. One is that if you weren't able to follow, I, it's okay. The poems are complicated. They're not accessible. That accessible. The, the goal was to get you to really feel Max and see who he was. And so I urge you buy the books if you haven't really, you know, look at them. Um, and the other most important thing I want to say is, if you fell in love with him, as you had to have. You might be wondering, where did he come from? Stand up, please. This is where he came from. This is his mom, who fought so bravely to keep him alive for as long as he was, who did everything to get him the best treatment, and you stand up too. Frank, that is his stepfather, Frank Dado, who was a hero and still is, and helps everybody to live with the loss of Max. Thank you so much.
engage with the audience now and answer some of your questions, um, whatever they need be. I'm going to just sort of start by commenting on these remarkable videos. Um, such, a, such a treat to be introduced to them and to see Max read his work after having seen him live on the page in this way. And I wonder, um, you know, it's clear he experienced so much joy in sharing his work. I wonder if, if any of you could say anything about what it meant to him to, sure. to be able to do that. So, um, for Max, his work was the only thing he could really leave, leave as a legacy. He knew he was dying, and though you see him being funny, very lively, uh, sort of sarcastic and whatnot, he suffered like no one I've ever seen suffering. Sometimes silently, and sometimes very loudly. He was in physical pain, he was in a panic, he was in misery. And his way of coping was surrounding himself with people whom he adored, who adored him back in work and at home, family and friends. And his work was his expression, his core, his center. He said always that if the reader can hear him and receive him in the reader's imagination and whatever your interpretation of a poem is yours to own, it doesn't have to be the way he wrote it, then you keep him alive to infinity. You give him another reincarnation, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, and it sprouts and he wanted it to be there for generations. He made me promise that I would make sure his work gets carried on and he said, he, 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 Max and I had an ongoing fight about whether he should continue to fight or not continue to fight. I did all of the medical research and I was his, his, the captain of his medical team from the home part, uh, dealt with the doctors, the litter I bought, I bought 13 mice, very expensive mice, and instead of exposing Max, to a bunch of chemotherapies which he couldn't endure, he was so weakened and suffered so much, we decided that, though as he says, it's not always perfect, better try it on the mice. And we each mouse got a different combination of medications, and they were observed for a period of time. And we looked at the curve um, compared to a mouse that received nothing. And if it worked really, really, really well on the mice, then it was worth my going to the FDA and fighting like crazy with them to give it to Max. And as long as I had those options, and we really believed that those options could reverse it for him, give him not a cure, but a remission, or buy him good time, quality time, until something else came along, as long as that was a possibility, I didn't want to give up. So when he wanted to give up, I had him call a shrink and duke it out with him and tell him how horrible I was for making him want to live, but it's a mother's job to keep her child alive. And his work kept him going internally. It wasn't anything else but what he created and produced himself. And I did promise him that when he could no longer write, I would get on board. And there came that time, he was too weak, he was too confused, 
uh, he was taking so much medication and he was drowning. His lungs were filling up with fluids and he said, this is what I imagine Guantanamo, Boy, Guantanamo Bay is like. This is what I imagine torture being like. So his work, he Max secured a promise from Louise Glick, who was one of his mentors, that she would continue his work. He secured a promise from Lucy. He secured a promise from Elizabeth Metzger, who is not here tonight, but I call her his spirit sister. They wrote together, they went to Columbia together, and Elizabeth, though she's from New York, moved to California at some point fortuitously. Um, she's married and living in California, now in LA, and she was over every single day. She would come to the chemo rooms and she would come to the, to the therapy room, all the different trials we were doing, and they would throw me out because they were, they were only allowed to have that many people in a room, and sometimes Max's wife was ushered out, and Elizabeth stayed with him, and they wrote and they edited and they produced and, and before Max died, he managed to give Elizabeth a list of definites, those are the poems that have to be out there in the world, uh, probables and maybes, he even divided them into categories and secured a promise from her that she would continue um, to, to, to get his work out in the world. And I'm pleased to say to date we've had, I don't know how many poems published in that 25 since he died. Herb took a few in Parnassus. Uh, Parnassus has some beautiful work that's going to be in his last book that Louise is editing now. And this was his, this was his life. And he said to me, I'm really lucky that I gave up the jock thing and that I like to write because that I can do in bed, you know. Because a lot of his friends that he met in the, in the treatment rooms a lot of kids with Ewings get it from sports injuries. They're athletes, they're football players, young 15-year-olds who play football. One young, young lady was into ice hockey, she's Canadian, and when they get sick and they have their amputation and whatnot, their life is over, even though they're alive, they're living. The quality of life, and, and this is the audience that, where you need to hear that the quality of life does not exist, and you need to create a quality of life for someone to want to go on. Otherwise, what's the point? Breathing is just breathing. As, as afraid as every human being is from dying, and Max was no exception, what kept the fear under control was not medications for Max, but it was writing and expressing and sharing and knowing that it will be out there in the world. Before he died, Max and I used to have really candid talks even about his dying, which was incredibly difficult, but if he wanted to have them, I said to him, I'll talk to you about whatever you want to talk about. And he said, I said to him, Max, I really can't imagine a world without you in it. You've been the center of this life and family for so long. He was our late-in-life child, very well planned. He was an adorable kid. He, he, he was writing by the time he was three and a half because he wanted to, not because anyone made him. But he also loved to surf. He always used to say, I'm going to hate New York because I'm a California dude. That didn't last long. He fell in love with New York and all it had to offer for all of the things that he loves to do. But in the end of the day, that he had his writing and that was something he could do until the end was something that not everybody gets to do. Oh, and he, so he said to, I said to him, I just can't imagine a world without you in it. And he looked at me and he said, Mommy... Neither can I.
and I just went like this and we hugged and we cried and and because we knew that the last two weeks of his life we had quite a few conversations about what it's going to be like and he told his wife that at some point he imagined himself in the place that she's going to be a month after he died, two months, four months after he died, so that when she gets to that place, for her to know that he already imagined himself there. As huge as Max's imagination was and is, there's no way he could have imagined what his physical absence would do to his family, to his friends, to people who worked with him and loved him. There's just no way. It's completely heartbreaking. You can never be prepared for it. And you just have to figure out what of him and how to keep it in the world. And I'm so grateful to you, Robin, because this was it's is a wonderful venue for his work, unusual venue outside of the poetry world, but really necessary for people who are working with terminally ill patients. And Stan Posick was saying that to me right after Max died, and you made it a reality here. So please, if anyone has any questions that I can answer, I'll So Max had many shrinks. Max loved shrinks. Uh, I have a doctorate in psychology, and his dad is a, is a very famous psychiatrist, so he loved shrinks. He grew up in a household where therapy was okay and a great thing to have. Um, uh, Dr. Pasek, Stan is a very special man, and though he's a very, very boundary analyst, and he treated Max throughout his, even when Max was uh, not ill at Yale when he was in remission, um, when Max was dying, in the end, Stan broke the therapeutic frame and the boundaries and was there for Max in, in, in supportive care, which is very, very important. It's very important to know when it's not useful to talk about what happened to you when you were two years old and your mother gave you a nightmare, you know? And Stan was very much in the moment with Max's current fears and symptoms and concerns and issues grappling with, with whether to live or whether to die, whether to let go or not to let go. Um, they maintained the relationship. Stan would come to New York to see him. They would talk on the phone. Max also had the New York shrink, and that was okay with Stan. I think Abe Bartel, he's a slow, he was at Sloan Kettering. He's no longer there. I think he's in Columbia now, actually. I'm not really sure up here. But Abe was more of a, of a behaviorist. And then he had one in California, who I'm actually seeing now. So, uh, because I want after Max died, I, I thought therapy is not going to be useful at all. You know, who can treat something like that? But this is a man who knew Max, so it was easier for me to go and not try to explain Max to him. You mean the, why the videos were jumping around? 
Robin assembled a playlist. She could have chosen to read them herself, but she really wanted, I think she wanted to bring Max into the room and have people experience Max. So the first one, Max was so thrilled about uh, this guy, Nate, animated a poem to my litter in The New Yorker. And Max thought it was the coolest thing ever. So Robin chose to put that first. She assembled. We put a lot of stuff on YouTube so people can watch him and listen to him read his poems and experience him in some small way if they never met him. I have a lot of other videos there of, of his different parts of his life. On my phone, I have a video of Max. Max really learned discipline when he was young. He got his black belt in karate in 2000, so he was nine years old when he got his first degree black belt and 12 when he got his second degree black belt. He was in the studio six days a week, working like a dog because he wasn't coordinated. He really wasn't a Jewish athlete. And, <laughs> but in the end, you couldn't tell because he really saw. So there, there are all kinds of the early videos and then Robin, um, looked at a playlist that I made of a reading in LA and that's where he's wearing that little red jacket and which I have now, I've confiscated that one and the other reading uh, was one that was done at Hudson Valley in the May, May before he died he, uh, and where he was wearing the jacket and you see him being humorous and, and you know, uh, promoting his book Aeons he was in excruciating pain that day he had sciatica from a tumor pressing on his spine. Unbelievable pain, and he was on a lot of medication. But he got through the evening because he wanted to. And it made him, he was happy, but feeling awful. And, that, and his wife made that playlist, so it's jumping around. Yeah. Hi. Um, Hi. I hope this is an okay question, so feel free not to answer it or not. But uh, I thought it was interesting because he said that he didn't believe in the afterlife. Sure. Uh, Max didn't know what to believe in, so sometimes he was the ultimate scientist believing in nothing. Um, he was exposed to Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and his own variety of and reassemblance of all of them. In the end, he was he really took to Tibetan Buddhism. I think Sarah Rule, the playwright, was a huge influence on him with that. And so every now and then he did believe that he was going to reincarnate, but he didn't quite know what it meant. And so he had a lot of, of thoughts and theories about that, none completely formed, none completely, not like, like one of his friends, Andrew, who, who uh, died, it was four years today actually, uh, and, and they're a really Christian family, and they were convinced he went home to Jesus, and they, that's what they believed. So they had that kind of comfort. Max never had this complete comfort. And in fact, he told me the day before he fell asleep, the day before they put him on the IVs, he said to me, I'm fluctuating, Mom, between panic and pain. So, and, and you could tell, he would wake up and he, he would be agitated and... I said to him, what's the matter, honey? And he'd say, I have no idea, I don't know. And I think people who have strong religious faith, death is a much nicer experience for them. Max was very, very spiritual and very big-hearted, but not with a, an ascribed religion, you know, prescribed. And, and so it, it's really hard to know what, 
what he left us with, but I do know he was very scared, and had he been, had he truly believed in reincarnation, then it would have been easier to let go and go through the Tibetan process of, of, of letting go. It's really important, by the way, if you believe in that. One of the key concepts in that is that you must let go and move peacefully. You can't resist. You can't want to stay with your earthly family and whatnot. And the family also needs to help you and, and let go. And it's, it's a, I think it's a 50-day process. Um, so that you can get a good reincarnation. And he's, well, that's, that's the way that the, that the uh, lamas presented. Um, we do these ceremonies for him, the Tibetan ceremonies. In fact, I'm going to see the Lama tomorrow. But, you know, I, I don't know that, that he fully adopted it. No. Maybe one more question? Thank you, first of all, for bringing Max to our world. Um, before I ask my question, uh, we actually read afternoon as part of our workshop before we started our narrative medicine here. Um, and when we heard it again um, now, I thought that there was really a lot of light in our room um, while we were reading that poem. And so it made me think of how that poem is very full of light. Um, but back to my question. Uh, you mentioned that Max started writing very early in his um, years, and so I was wondering if you remember what his one of his first works was. About. The first works was a handwritten thing where he wrote, "I have two hamsters full of spelling mistakes." Because I was his homeschool teacher, and I said to him, "Don't worry about spelling; just write your feelings and what you see." Uh, their name is Einstein and Rupert. My mom has sciatica. I love my mom. It hurts so much. <laughs> that was about it. So the little, yeah. And I said, that's a great story, you know, because we ne Max's dad and I really never criticized him. When, when Lucy, when you talk about putting him in the corner, Max was never afraid of being put in timeout because I did it once to him when he was about four years old. I said, go sit down in timeout, and I had it in mind, he was, he was my third child, that I would let him out in two minutes, and I forgot about him. <laughs> my daughter before him was a, was a difficult child, and she would have, she reminded me, she was in time out all of her life. And she kept reminding, is it time yet, is it time yet, is it time yet? No, Sky, it's not time yet. Well, I forgot him for 45 minutes, and this little voice goes, Mommy, is time out done yet? <laughs> I have never felt so guilty in my life. This is Jewish guilt personified. Never put him in time out again. Because he's a really good kid and it was something stupid. Yeah. Okay. I think we're, um, we're out of time, but uh, I want to thank you so much thank for you. being with us today, for um, keeping Max alive for all of us. We've all been touched very deeply already by his work, and uh, we've only begun to explore in our program. So um, I so appreciate it. Thank you, Robin, for organizing this and so much for your lovely remarks today, Lucy. Um, thank you all. Uh, we are uh, going to be posting the playlist on our Facebook page. Yeah, we'll, we'll do the link so that if you want to look it over again or if you get the book and want to read, read it while you're listening to it. Thank you, everyone. Good night.